Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you, Tom. 25 to 8 now. The government's being pushed to go further on perpetrators of domestic abuse and stalking. Campaigners and the House of Lords want a comprehensive system registering and monitoring them. Ministers say the package they're proposing will result in a strong framework. This was the Home Office Minister, Victoria Atkins, last night. If I thought that these amendments would of themselves make women safer, I would be offering them my full support. But it remains our view that they will not deliver the outcome they seek to secure. I say again that the legislative framework under which the multi-agency public protection arrangements operate is not the problem here. We acknowledge that these arrangements need to work better on the ground, but we need to look elsewhere for the fix. Well, let's turn now to Zoe Dronfield, who was seriously injured in 2014 by a former boyfriend who began stalking her after their relationship ended. Good morning, Zoe. Good morning. Can you describe the behaviour that um, that took place between the relationship coming to an end and the attack on you? Yes, yeah, so I was trying to end the relationship. I mean, it started like any other relationship. It was fine. Um, but kind of seven, eight months into the relationship, things started to change. And um, I suppose he started to show his true colours. So, you know, I'd asked him to, to leave he, he, and, and, you know, I wanted some space. But that was kind of like a switch which flicked in him. And he then started contacting me numerous times a day and to the point where I said, look, I, you know, I just want to have complete, I just want this to end, which then he just upped the ante again to the point where I needed to call the police. Um, when I was calling the police, I was saying, well, he hasn't really done anything yet. Um, so I was felt like I was just a sitting duck. I mean, I was, I was working from home, having to park my car streets away so he didn't know I was home. He was calling me, leaving me voicemails, text messages, WhatsApps, Facebook. It was just relentless. And, you know, I've got children. I'm not able to turn my phone off, which is the advice that was given to me by the police. And that's not acceptable because when I, when I, did, when I didn't answer the phone, he would then turn up in person. Um, you know, this went on over time until he actually uh, damaged my door and he was being, he was getting, um, he was being charged for criminal damage. But even when he was let out on bail, that continued, the contact continued. So I then um, thought I'd go and meet him and talk sense into him. I now know that I put myself in a huge amount of danger. However, I did not know he was a serial perpetrator. I did not know he'd done this before. And when my story went into the press, 13 other women came forward to say that they'd been in a relationship with him that was also abusive and the police were involved. And what did he end up doing to you? 
um, while I was nearly murdered, I was I was stabbed um, in the neck, stabbed through the back of my hand, which are defence wounds. I was stamped all over. I mean, if you put my name in Google, you'll see the horrific pictures. Um, I lost two pints of blood. I had a bleed on the brain, broken arm, broken nose. And this went over, on over a number of hours. I'm so sorry. That's a that's a you know terrible litany of thing of things that happened. Is mm. you, you so is do you think that had had there been a different system of mm-hmm. registering and monitoring people, the previous history, the 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 way that thirteen other women their experience would have been would, would have come up to police dealing with your case? Yeah, because absolutely because. What happened in my case is that when I made that first 999 call, they treated me as as a first offence. You know, this is a this is the first ever 999 call. However, had Smith had been flagged to whoever took that call, saying that he's been convicted before of harassment, and he's there's other women that have been on fast response with the police, then they would have they would have acted differently. I wouldn't have been marked as standard risk. That I would have been marked at high risk, and their response to my call wouldn't have been to brush me off and minimise what I was going through. They would have dealt with it differently. Zoe Dronfield, thank you very much. Uh, And Laura Richards is also on the line, founder of the charity Paladin, which supports victims of stalking and their families. She's also been working with members of the House of Lords on amendments to the domestic abuse bill. Um, Laura Richards, what is the key difference between what the government is proposing and what you want? Because they also say they are determined to provide a better framework to to monitor uh, offenders, serial perpetrators in future. Good morning. Yes, the government have come some way to meet us. There will be a new database that will be rolled out next year and there will be a perpetrator strategy, which is what we've asked for. But what they're saying is that they would just issue more guidance. Well, we've already got guidance. We want to make sure that perpetrators like Smith, which happened in Zoe's case, doesn't happen again. And guidance alone, we believe, will not be sufficient to change what's currently going on. It's one of the key differences that the government's focusing on serial and high harm offenders, and you want all perpetrators, even those who've never been convicted. No, we're requesting, I mean, my campaign has always been about serial and high harm domestic abusers and stalkers. And we want them to be the government to agree that they will be included under category three of MAPA, the multi-agency public protection arrangements. But Minister Atkins did not confirm that yesterday in the Commons. She did not confirm that that would happen. And so we want to make sure in our amendment today in the Lords that it's clear that these serial and high harm domestic abusers and stalkers must be included under Category 3. And to give you an idea, currently under Category 3, only 330 perpetrators have been managed. The scale of the problem is about 50,000 serial domestic abusers and stalkers. So we have a big gap. And so why will guidance that we already have, they're going to issue new guidance, why would that close that gap? That's what we're not clear on from the government. Right. And would serial stalkers... Um, and and domestic abuse perpetrators, if there have been multiple reports about them, would you like to see them in that Category 3 again if they weren't necessarily convicted? Absolutely. That's what Category 3 exists for, that you may have two, three. With Zoe's case, it was 13 women. With Shana Grice's case, it was 13 women. With others, it's 18. We're talking about men who have a long history that are not being picked up because police and others are not checking their previous patterns of behaviour and are not flagging them to that system. So there's already guidance to say that they should. 
So the government saying they just issue more guidance. Why would that change the culture of what's going on currently? Laura Richards, thank you very much. And Zoe Dronfield as well, who we heard from earlier. Thanks. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and Episode 20. Now, I want to start off by thanking you all for your amazing responses to my special series with Georgia Gabriel Hooper. I really wanted to do this series as I wanted everyone to hear the real impact of coercive control, stalking and serial perpetrators on real people's lives. And it's so important you hear first-hand accounts of these horrific murders in slow motion. You see, one of the key problems for me is that too often the media and others focus on the murder itself, as if it just came out of the blue, which is a gross distortion and misconception of what really happened. You see, in many cases, just like Cheryl's, it took her years to die. Slowly, over time, with her autonomy, agency and self-esteem being gradually eroded. And then when she finally realises enough is enough and musters the energy and the courage to leave the abuser, at the point she starts to get her life back on track and begins to taste freedom and being liberated, that same entitled man reappears back on the scene and extinguishes her life forever. As according to his distorted and entitled cognition, if he can't have her, no one will. And his sense of humiliated fury takes over. You see, he has to be the one to have the last say. It ends when he says it does. That's what's in his mind, the psychology of an abuser. It's his way or no way, even if that means brutally killing the person that he wants to be with. And my campaign work, well, all my work is about centering the victim's narrative and also centering on the points of intervention so that we ensure we end it on our terms and that we keep women and children safe, and we work to disrupt and hack his behaviour by taking the control away from him and taking proactive action before he gets a chance to escalate to murder. That's what all professionals should be geared up for and working towards. And so please keep posting your comments on social media and also on whatever platform you listen to me on. Do leave a five-star review because it really helps others find me. It helps more people listen to George's interview and Richard McCann's and others. And yes, I wholeheartedly agree with you all. Georgia is a very special young woman and it's amazing that she can share what happened so honestly and be so open and also try and create change alongside me and others to ensure her mother's murder wasn't in vain and no other child goes through what she has. I'm in awe of her and I'll always be there for her. We really want to ensure that women being killed are not just statistics. It's real people, real lives that are being torn apart and everyone needs to remember that. And sadly, this is the everyday nature of my work. I often see the worst of human behaviour And it's not easy analysing cases, discerning what went on and what went wrong, listening to victims and survivors and hearing their stories of heartbreak, fear and abject terror. But I like to play my part and do what I can by giving them a platform if they want it and the opportunity to work with me campaigning to create real change and improve the system and ensure it works better and that the professionals in the system get it. The costs are so high when they don't. And in my experience, no one wants their loved one's death to be for nothing. 
And so I hope you'll forgive me and understand why I momentarily have jumped out of the Forgotten Victims series. I really wanted to give you real-time updates about my work and the campaign as it was happening. But you'll now see and understand that all my work is interrelated. And I wanted to share with you a number of cases which highlight why this law reform campaign about holding serial domestic abusers and stalkers to account and being proactive regarding their behaviour is so important and why I do what I do. You see, I don't just talk about cases on a podcast to do a podcast. I don't just tell stories about horrible things that have happened to people and the worst moments of their lives. This is what I do professionally day in and day out, and I'm sharing that with you through Crime Analyst. It's an honour and a privilege, and I hope you understand that it's also an honour and a privilege when Richard McCann and Georgia and others have very real conversations with me, and then you have the opportunity to listen to them. This really isn't about entertainment, but granted, good storytelling does capture our attention, And for me, it's always about the nuanced detail of behaviour and the context, the granular details that reveal so much. Well, I would say that as a criminal behavioural analyst, I hear you say, it's my staple. And as I said at the start of Crime Analyst, Crime Analyst is a real behind-the-scenes look at my work through the cases and the people that I'm working with. I want you to have a sense of what a criminal behavioural analyst does and what my work entails so that you have a better understanding of it. And it's also about education, raising awareness and ensuring that we get better, not just the professionals, well, them in particular, but everybody, whether you're a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a cousin, male, female, young, old, we all have a role to play. And I do just want to say that I've heard from many men, actually, who've DM'd me sent me messages to say they've never thought about crime, violence and male violence in this way before. And it's really given them a different perspective. And now they realise they have to step up. That's hugely encouraging for me. So thank you for sending me those messages. It really is for everybody. And as I said, it's not for women and girls to fix the problem of male violence. It's actually for men to fix, for them to hold others to account. That's really important that people understand that. And you'll also understand that my work isn't linear, nor is it neatly compartmentalised or a regular nine-to-five job. Crime never happens on a nine-to-five basis. And certainly with campaign work, if you do it, if your campaign catches fire and momentum starts to build like mine, that's the thing you've been working your socks off to achieve. Well, you have to surf the wave, no matter how big it might be and how little resources you might have, i.e. I haven't had a whole team, but you've all been fantastic in promulgating the messages, emailing, messaging MPs, members of parliament, and posting things on social media. But going back to my surfing analogy, because I do surf, but not right now because I'm pregnant, I would say it is like surfing. You see the wave, you create more momentum and you jump on the board and you ride it for as long as you can. And I've been working for more than 20 years to create this real change. Real changes that challenge and change culture and ensure professionals focus on the perpetrators and that men hold other men to account. And this campaign caught fire when I was pregnant and I've ended up working most weekends and late into most evenings to the cry of, now you're pregnant, you have to take it easy, rest up. Well, those who know me well have said, like, that was ever going to happen. And they always chuckle. But the last part of the domestic abuse bill, the ping pong aspect, 
And that's the part between both houses, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. That back and forth across both houses happened whilst I was on my baby moon, and so I ended up working again. You see, rarely with my work do I ever get a full holiday, and that's been the same story since I began my career. And I'm not saying that for sympathy. I'm saying it so that you understand the reality of my work and what it entails, and it never stops. You see, it really is a vocation rather than a job. It's in my blood, it's in my DNA, it's what I do and it's who I am. But I also take my self-care now very seriously, and you'll see me post about self-care. I build it into my everyday routine. But these last five months have been tough, and they've been intensive and frustrating. It's been challenging in every way, and even tougher because of the increase in femicide and the lack of urgency in responding to male violence. You see, this really isn't a new thing, as you've been hearing in my analysis and deconstruction of the forgotten victims, a case that happened over 40 years ago. Well, the clip you heard at the start of this episode was Zoe Dromfield and I being interviewed by BBC Radio 4 right before the last debate in the House of Lords on the domestic abuse bill and my amendment, Amendment 42. It was a live interview at 11.30pm my time on Monday the 26th of April and 7.30am Tuesday the 27th of April UK time ahead of the debate in the House of Lords and just after the debate in the House of Commons. And as I said, I often have to do long hours, but it's important to me, although not many people understand or get that. But Zoe and I have been working together for many years now. She's lucky to be alive and she knows it. She's a warrior and a survivor in every sense of those words. When I first met Zoe in London, we talked in detail about her case. I could barely get a word in edgeways and she won't mind me saying that. You see, often when I give someone a safe space to tell their story, I discover that no one has done that previously. That's also what we need to change and improve upon. Interview skills, communication skills and professionals really need accredited training to use the DASH risk model, the domestic abuse, stalking and honour-based violence risk model. But going back to that night when I met Zoe six years ago or so, she recounted to me the horrific detail of the savage and brutal eight-hour attack by Jason Smith on February the 2nd, 2014, a night that changed her life forever. It was an attack that left her with life-threatening injuries, including a bleed on the brain, from Jason Smith stamping on her head, amongst other things. And I will never forget Zoe pausing to take a breath, and she looked at me intensely, dead in both my eyes, and without blinking or hesitation, she said, he was not going to kill me on that night. He was not going to leave my two children without a mum. And in that very moment, I could see Zoe's inner strength and mental fortitude. I understood her will to survive and to fight for her life, and that will and that fight for survival was stronger than anything else. Her children, under no circumstance, were going to be left without a mother. That night, all Zoe had to rely on was her gut instincts. It was her gut instincts which saved her, not the police, nor anyone else. She saved her own life, and thank goodness she is alive to tell us more about what happened, and she will tell you more, as I've recorded an interview with her, so I'm not going to go into all the details here, but there are a couple of points that I want to highlight to set that up. And um, one of those things is something that happened at Jason Smith's trial, and the recorder Richard Atkins QC told Jason Smith this. Having beaten her, 
and knocked her senseless, you then took a knife to her face. The photographs of the victim's injuries are deeply unpleasant. She was quite viciously assaulted and savagely cut. This was a sustained attack. There were numerous blows to the victim's head and body with feet and a sharp object. But there's a violent bully in you that won't take no for an answer. I therefore feel ten years in prison plus four in licence is an appropriate sentence. Now the response from Lee Egan, who was defending Smith, was this. Lee Egan said, My client doesn't accept guilt. His overriding concern at the police interview immediately after the incident was for Miss Dromfield's welfare. It was an isolated incident and it was not premeditated. But she did suffer life-changing injuries. He does feel remorse for causing them, although he doesn't remember doing it. Hmm, there we go again. Another so-called isolated incident and the old loss of memory at the point of accountability. You see, it's all too common for that to be trotted out by the defence and the untruths told about his history in this case are mind-blowing, quite frankly. And also interesting that he doesn't accept guilt, but he does feel remorse for causing the injury. Well, that's a contradiction in terms. And there's a lot more we're going to say about that. But as you heard on the clip, when Zoe first spoke out in the media about the attack, 13 women contacted her. They had dated Jason Smith and had been abused by him to varying degrees, and many of them had called the police. One of them was and still is a serving police officer in the same police force Zoe reported him to. And that serving police officer reported him for rape, assault, burglary and forced imprisonment. However, he ended up only being charged and convicted for harassment and he served three months in prison. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The victim, the police officer, who I'm not naming to protect her, also told the police officers who interviewed her that she believed that Smith would kill a woman one day. How utterly horrific. And coming from a police officer too, that should have been given weight and credence. And the fact that Smith abused a police officer speaks volumes. And the fact that he was only convicted for harassment and served just three months no doubt further played a role in greenlighting his behaviour, in my opinion. Note the unduly lenient sentence and the undercharging, both of which are commonplace with violence against women. But importantly, he was convicted, and Zoe had called the police previously to ask for protection, and so it's simply not accurate for Lee Egan to say to the court that the attack on Zoe was an isolated incident. This was clearly a pattern of escalating behaviour, and so you can probably well understand Zoe's utter confusion and despair, well, now anger, when she had been calling the police for help and protection and there was no join-up about his past behaviour. A similar theme, a similar pattern that repeats over and over and over again. 
And I'm not going to go into any more detail here about Zoe's case. I've given you some of the broad strokes. And sadly, the case did not end there. It was just the beginning of Zoe's nightmare. And I want you to hear Zoe describe it in her own words. There's an awful lot to say. But let me give you a heads up in advance. It's harrowing, haunting and angry making in equal measure. And as I've said before, this campaign has spanned most of my career, and Zoe has been a warrior spearheading it with me since 2015, alongside John Clough, whose daughter Jane was stalked and murdered in 2010 by a serial perpetrator, Jonathan Vaz. I'll tell you more about Jane in another episode, but know that Jane was a bubbly, vivacious A&E nurse who had recently had a baby with Jonathan Vaz, and she separated from him. And he then decided to brutally murder her. And yes, it was another murder in slow motion. And yes, another child is growing up without her mummy because of the actions of an entitled selfish man who felt it was his right to kill her. You see, sadly, there have been far too many murders of women and children and women being seriously harmed. And right now, domestic murder is at a five-year high. And it's not just true of the UK, but all across the globe, compounded further by the pandemic and an increase in male violence towards women at home. And the forgotten victims case, well, that's all about a serial perpetrator, a serial predatory stalker who was allowed to get away with it. And then you'll recall there was Sarah Everard, 40 years on, who disappeared in Clapham in London on March 3rd, 2021. And women were being told to stay at home all over again. And the man who's been charged with her murder was a serving Metropolitan Police officer who we learned through media reports has a history. Now, I can't go into that due to the impending court case, the case of Judas, but my point is that murder, rape and violence is rarely a one-off. It's a pattern of behaviour. And yet too often the system and the professionals in it inadvertently collude with the perpetrator by not taking reports seriously or doing their part to hold offenders to account. Also in the wake of a woman being killed or seriously harmed, tone-deaf and ill-informed comments are made by police officers and others, and it really needs to stop. For example, in Sarah Everard's case, you'll recall Commissioner Cressida Dick said that events like this are rare. Well, as I said before, no, they're not. And another murder of a woman is in the headlines, a woman called Julia James, and she was found with blunt force trauma to the head on Tuesday the 27th of April in Kent. However, there hasn't been the same outcry over Julia's murder that there was after 33-year-old Sarah Everard was killed, nor equally for the other 16 women who've been killed by men since March the 15th, when we won the landslide victory in the House of Lords. Karen Ingler-Smith provided me with the names of the 16 women, albeit she said it was more likely 26, but she's still waiting confirmation of the others. But I want to name the 16 women who are confirmed, so they're not forgotten. Karen McLean Stacey Nell Smita Mystery, Samantha Mills, Patricia Audsley, Phyllis Nelson, Claudia Soltis, Simone Ambler, Emma MacArthur, Sherry Milnes, Constanta Bunia, Jacqueline Grant, Loretta Herman, Egle Vangelina, Sally Metcalf, 
Sarah Keith. Where's the outcry for them? And seven of those 16 were Conservative constituents and the Conservative government voted down this vital life-saving amendment. It comes to something when I have to point out that every woman counts. But we know that some receive more attention than others and the Home Office don't even count the murders of women by men separately and that's even more instructive of how little attention is paid to women being killed by men. So kudos to Karen Ingler-Smith, who set up Counting Dead Women UK Project and the Femicide Census, who does count women who are murdered by men when they've been charged. And I have to say that in 2001, I started the count of domestic murders in the Metropolitan Police Service because no one counted them before, which really baffled me. I always said to senior officers, I could walk into any supermarket and find out how many carrots had been sold to the minute, but we, the Metropolitan Police Service, couldn't say with any confidence how many domestic murders there'd been in any given year. That was shocking to me. And this is where domestic homicide reviews came from. Myself and DCI Alan Orbelak started them in the Met in 2001, and it was enshrined in law in the Domestic Violence Crime and Victims Act in 2004, but sadly, we still don't have accurate figures in 2021, which is shocking. And I believe that male violence and women and girls being killed by men should be looked at specifically. The numbers should be regularly counted and there should be a proactive strategy for dealing with it. And I'm going to come back to this as I want to tell you about Julia James first off and what's been said since, as it's directly relevant to the point I'm making. Julia's body was found a few hundred yards from her house in Accord Wood, Snowdown, near Dover in Kent, on Tuesday the 27th of April. She had been out taking her dog, Toby, for a walk. Toby, her Jack Russell, was guarding her body when she was found at around 4pm. A post-mortem examination concluded that she died from blunt force trauma. 53-year-old Julia was a PCSO, a police community support officer working with Kent Police. She had joined the police force as a PCSO in 2008 and had more recently been working with victims of domestic abuse while based in Canterbury. She had been commended for bravery in her career and she also had a husband, a daughter, a son and a grandson. Well, on Tuesday, whilst the domestic abuse bill and the serial perpetrator aspect was being debated in the House of Lords, Julia was working from home and she only left to walk the dog. However, she never returned. Kent Police said hundreds of officers were working on the murder inquiry, but no motive or suspects have been found. In fact, Assistant Chief Constable Tom Richards of Kent Police made a statement to the media at a press conference near Elsom, and he said that Julia's murder was a, and I quote, rare and isolated event. Yep, there it is again. Another so-called rare and isolated event. Another woman being killed. Now asked if there was a possibility that she had been killed due to her work, he replied this. We are considering all the possible motivations and all possible options. We certainly have not established that at this stage. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because now he's admitted that they don't know what the motive is and he says that they have no clear suspects. But yet ACC Richards is saying that Julia's murder is a rare and isolated event. How and why? I mean, at this early stage in the investigation, it's just not possible to know whether this is part of a series 
or whether she was stalked beforehand, it's just too early to say. So why say anything at all? There's really no need. Furthermore, to say it's rare and isolated is simply not true or accurate. You see, as I've said many times before, femicide is not a rare event. Every three days a woman is killed by a man, and every four days a woman is killed by a male, former or current partner in the UK. And so to say this serves only as a false reassurance, and it's inaccurate, it's not backed up by evidence, and shows how out of touch and tone deaf they are to women being killed, particularly at this current time in the zeitgeist, in the wake of the outpouring by women about their everyday risk and safety and harassment by men following Sarah Everard's murder. A British police officer has been charged with the kidnapping and murder of 33-year-old Sarah Everard, whose disappearance last week has sparked global outrage among women about their safety. British Metropolitan Police Commissioner Nick Efgrave said Friday the investigation is ongoing. A serving police constable has tonight been charged with the kidnap and murder of Sarah Everard. Wayne Cousins, aged 48, has been remanded in custody and will appear at Westminster Magistrates Court tomorrow morning. Everard was last seen on the night of March 3rd as she walked home from a friend's house in South London. On Friday, police identified a body found in a wood near the spot as Everard's, igniting fear and anger from women across Britain. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said Friday he was appalled by the murder. The whole country will be united in uh, their feeling for her friends, uh, her family, and will share their shock and, and their grief. And uh, I, can, I can see uh, and I totally understand uh, why this has triggered such a wave of feeling on, on this issue, uh, on the issue of, of safety of women and safety of the, of the streets. Women have since flooded social media with tributes to Everard, sharing their own experiences and fears of walking alone at night. Anna Burley, who organized a vigil for Everard, says women shouldn't be expected to change their behavior to stay safe. For us, it's about standing up to that and saying that spaces should be safe for women um, and that it's not our behavior that needs to change. It's not about what we wear. It's not about what time we go out. We can't self-impose a curfew on ourselves because of our gender. It's about actually raising the issue of violence and harassment of women and telling men that it's their job to uh, change their behavior as well. And I'll also share with you that after every domestic violence murder, a police officer will tell the media that it's a isolated incident. Again, perhaps in some misguided way, they think that this is somehow reassuring. But to most of us, it's not. To most of us, women, 51% of the population, it serves as a reminder of the gender inequality and how women's lives can be snuffed out and extinguished so easily by a man because we did not bend to his will. And so, no, we don't want to hear that it's a so-called isolated incident, as we know that he was most likely abusive and controlling to her before he killed her. And we know that male violence towards women is a pattern and one that is largely out of control. So here's some homework for you. Do read the newspaper report the next time a woman has been killed, and we know it's just a matter of days. And look at how it's being reported. 
Most often she is just the wife. Whilst he is fully named and titled, sometimes with his sporting achievements and job title and other irrelevant things to illustrate what a good guy he is. I always read these stories. Sometimes it's a tiny paragraph which denotes how commonplace and how non-newsy it really is that another woman has been killed by a man. But sure enough, it will still be there, this isolated incident. And sure enough, I will correct the narrative on social media but yet still the message is not getting through. So perhaps you can all be activists in this too and challenge the media. After all, most journalists are men, and so we see an inherent and unconscious gender bias in the stories that are reported upon and the detail and the context of how they're reported. And I would also strongly urge police colleagues to stop saying it's a rare and isolated event or incident after a woman has been killed. And if you do media training for the police or other organisations and agencies, please brief them on this. Now, if you're a senior leader in the police, please ensure you do your due diligence before speaking out and give out timely, appropriate and accurate information to the public. This was one of the findings from the Byford Inquiry, after all. Remember? And here's some further free and premium advice for police colleagues. Please stop focusing your efforts on solely advising women to change our behaviour, as if the duty solely rests on women to keep ourselves safe. Please switch gears and proactively focus on the men who are the problem and focus on sending key messages to them instead. We did this whilst I was in the Racial and Violent Crime Task Force at New Scotland Yard. We placed drink coasters, ads, flyers, posters and billboards in bars, clubs, gyms and football matches, as well as in newspapers in the sports section at the back, with key messages aimed directly at domestic abusers. Some of those messages said, your partner's silence no longer protects you, and that we, the Metropolitan Police Service, were coming after them. It was a real game changer, and I want to see a return to that. Speak to the perpetrators and would-be perpetrators directly. Make them feel like they're being watched and put under the microscope and under pressure and lay out what will happen to them if they continue to abuse or to use violence. Force them to change their behaviour through overt and covert tactics and techniques. This is exactly the sort of cultural change I want to see and it's perfectly doable. We did it at New Scotland Yard. You see, male violence really is the one thing that unites all women, as Julie Bindle rightly said. But too often the messages are going out to the wrong people and it's high time the police stop the false reassurances and rather tell the public very clearly about what their plan is to tackle the problem of male violence towards women and children. And that's where the serial domestic abuser and stalker campaign fits in. It really is the game changer that would force this change and force the cultural shift we urgently need when it's the perpetrator's behaviour that should be being scrutinised and put under the microscope, where it should be the abuser who lives in fear and not women and children. And so I'm intentionally giving you more background context to the campaign and I want to tell you about the latter stages of the domestic abuse bill, as I think it's only right that you hear exactly what happened. After all, so many of you have been on some of this journey with me, now being activists yourselves. You've been reposting on social and writing to your Member of Parliament, and so I also want to thank you again for that. This campaign, as I said, has been my longest yet, but it moved very quickly throughout the latter stages of the domestic abuse bill being in Parliament this year. 
And just for further context, the domestic abuse bill's passage has not been a smooth one. It's actually taken over four years. And yes, that's a long time. Theresa May, the former Home Secretary, who I worked with on the stalking legislation following the murder of one of her constituents, Rana Faruqi, and yes, that's sadly another case that I'll tell you more about another time, well, Theresa May thereafter became Prime Minister, and the domestic abuse bill was her baby, part of her legacy, and she envisaged the domestic abuse bill to be pioneering and landmark, a real game-changer for victims. And I now wonder if she feels that it's achieved that. I have my own view, of course, which I'll share very soon. But due to the back and forth between the House of Lords and the House of Commons, the process known as ping-pong, due to the lack of agreement on Amendment 42 and some of the other amendments, there was talk of not killing the bill, and added pressure being piled on by government ministers. You see, a bill cannot be passed without full agreement from both houses. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Amendment 42 was subject of much debate. And what I will say is that debate was excellent because it raised awareness by spotlighting the many failures in the system resulting in women and children being murdered by serial abusers. And the government admitted to those failures. And that's a very important point. As I always say, the stakes are high. It's not just about getting something wrong. This is women and children's lives, and it's the same failures repeating over and over again. I am convinced that if men were being killed at the same rate, there would be COBRA meetings and an urgent response. And that's what really grinds my gears. Now, you can read the many briefing papers that I've written on this subject, as well as articles in The Telegraph and The Independent, amongst many other newspapers. And I'll put some of the links in the show notes. But I do just want to circle back and highlight one particular briefing, which I called 30 Perpetrators. I talked about it on my first special report, and I wrote the report profiling 30 perpetrators due to Baroness Susan Williams stating that she didn't know of one case where a woman or child had been seriously harmed or killed by a serial perpetrator and where MAPA, the multi-agency public protection arrangement, had failed. Well, I wrote that paper within two hours of hearing her say this, and I detailed the 30 cases off the top of my head. I've been doing this for a very long time, and my work is evidence-based. I was also very angry hearing that she said this because I provided many briefings, briefing after briefing, and it appears that she hadn't read any of them. In fact, when Baroness Helen Newlove read out Georgia Gabriel Hooper's statement in the House of Lords, which I'd given to her, Baroness Susan Williams said she hadn't even heard of the case. Well, she has now, and I hope that she listens to Crime Analyst in my three-part interview with Georgia to understand the impact of a child's mother being brutally murdered in front of her, but more so the years preceding of abuse and coercive control, and unfortunately, no help was forthcoming from the police, despite the fact Andrew Hooper had a previous history, yet again. And that's why I wanted all of you to hear my conversation with Georgia, as the report detailed hers and her mother's case, along with 29 others. Too many to go into here, so please do read the report. The link is in the show notes. But I want to go over the headlines again. 28 of the perpetrators had killed 51 women and 8 children. 30 had seriously harmed 58 more women and another 15 children. And that's just a snapshot of the damage and harm a serial perpetrator causes. These men are mini-crime waves. 
And if I set this against the backdrop that in the UK, domestic abuse crossed society 66 billion every year and one murder costs about 3.2 million to investigate it, according to the Home Office's own report. And for the police respond to one call out, it costs around 1,500 to 2,000 pounds. It's a huge amount of money. So now perhaps you'll understand that too many women are being killed and an awful lot of money is being spent on a very reactive approach. And that's exactly what I've been trying to and continue to try and change to create a proactive approach and response to perpetrators. It's a very different culture and would be a game changer. But despite Prime Minister Boris Johnson vowing on national TV and in Parliament that more would be done, there's been continuing resistance. And I really want to go into the detail about that resistance, but I'm going to have to do it in the next episode. I always have a lot to say, and I want to give you much more of the detailed context and the background about this campaign and the shape of where we've been, because it's important that you know that detail. So I'm going to end by returning to Julia James's murder and asking that if you know anything about Julia James's murder, or perhaps if you were walking near Accult Wood in Elsom Road, area of Snowdown in Kent, please call Kent Police on 0800 0514 526. And they've asked that if you have any camera footage, if you took any pictures, please send it to Kent Police. So that number again, 0800 0514 526. Hashtag Her name was Julia James, and her daughter and her family and everyone really wants to get justice for Julia. So until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>